Welcome to Big Tent Radio on um, KRBX 89.9, Caldwell Boise, Radio Boise. I'm Jackie Kettler. I'm here with my co-hosts today, Jen Schneider, Luke Fowler, and Charlie Hunt on the boards. And today we're going to be talking about some of the kind of big environmental stories from throughout this this year. Both Jen and Luke are experts in environmental politics and policy. I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> you have a great deal of expertise in this area, so it'll be great to draw on your um, both of your thoughts and evaluations or reactions for this year. And one thing that we saw was um, some changing at the federal level of some deregulation and some other elements. So what's kind of some big things that happened at the federal level in terms of environmental policy? Yeah, I think one of the things that I've been thinking about is that it's always difficult to study a president while they're in power as things are ongoing. But I think this president in particular is tough to study because there's a lot of political chaos They don't have the same sort of communication apparatus that other presidents have had. Um, But one area that we are sure that the Trump administration has been making progress in is in the area of environmental deregulation. So there's these amazing deregulation trackers that folks can see online. Harvard Law has one. Columbia University has another. Um, And what we see is just a long list of regulatory rollbacks that have happened under the Trump administration, particularly in the area of air quality, which Luke studies, but also in the area of energy, which I study. So, Luke, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about what's happening with with air quality or air pollution at the federal level. Well, I'll talk kind of broadly about some of the... um some of the things that have gone on with the Trump administration and largely like it's it's interesting because he has done it on a massive scale but it's largely a continuation of the same tools that were being used and pioneered by George Bush and then later Barack Obama and what we broadly call the administrative presidency right then it's this shift from using uh, traditional policy and legislative uh, like frameworks to get our policy agenda accomplished and instead using the bureaucracy and like literally like we go back like George Bush was the first person to do this and Obama did the exact same thing he just did in a different direction and Trump has taken all of that and put it on steroids right and but it's really a continuation of what we've seen for the last 20 years is some of that due to like the gridlock in DC is that helping move towards this administrative presidency or are there other elements that I, I think that's part of it um, I think it's also part of like when we think about things like clean air and clean water there's not necessarily let's say a, a centralized environmental agenda that looks at that right and it's not so much about changing our policy directions and pushing through these big packages it's really Really just kind of this like let's just deregulate everything right and i think it's much more piecemeal at least with trump uh, i know with bush and obama they did come into this with and there was really a response to, to gridlock particularly for obama in response to the congressional control of of or republican control of congress but for trump i think it's much more piecemeal just like let's just this de- deregulate things like here and there and so i mean it, it comes from you know uh taking away experts on advisory panel panels from epa um it takes it comes away from just removing regulations in a lot of different places it comes from appointing people like scott pruitt to lead the epa and so it's played out in a lot of different ways but i mean jen nails it right it's just this massive movement of deregulation that has happened and it's all coming through this very like subtle quiet place because I, I don't think Trump the Trump administration can really point to one legislative accomplishment in terms of environmental policy but when you look com- cumulatively of everything that's happened in the last two years like it's been a major rollback of the advances that we've made over the last 30 years I mean I think we should be clear that 
Trump had control of Congress for his first two years, and I think legislative accomplishments could have been possible, particularly in the area of environmental policy. But Luke's absolutely right that George W. Bush and Obama made use of things like executive orders for accomplishing their environmental goals, and Trump certainly has taken that to heart. And we know in particular, I I guess the only place I would disagree with you a little bit, Luke, would be that it's piecemeal. I think it's been very aggressive, very organized, and in a lot of ways, very uh, systematic. So in particular, for example, uh, the president has been in close contact with uh, folks who head up major energy companies, coal, oil, and gas in particular. And in fact, some of those folks have helped to write the actual executive orders that he has written. And so he's marched through almost every major environmental accomplishment that Obama in particular was able to um, to uh, put into effect. Are we seeing any effects from this deregulation yet? Or is this something that we'll be watching for for years afterwards? I think both. I think we're um, definitely seeing declines in air quality across the nation, and the experts that I'm reading are drawing a direct line to deregulation that's happening, particular at the EPA. The refusal to enforce regulations that are on the books, I think, is one of the biggest tools um, that um, the right has right now, the president has. And then I also think when it comes to things like climate policy, for example, or energy policy, we'll be tracking the ramifications of those decisions for, for decades to come. Yeah, no, I agree. I think there are short-term consequences that are, that are going on in air and, qual- uh, air and water quality and some of these, these things that... Um, environmental indicators that are much more sensitive to the economy and some of the things that go on. But these are all going to have very, very, are going to have long-term implications in a lot of ways. Um, And so what we're talking about now in terms of like, say, deregulating air, yeah, it might take, you know, a year, 18 months for these things to pop up for us. But unwinding this and fixing this is going to take us decades, right? Um, and so a lot of this is about the cultural enforce, the culture of enforcement. And one thing that I study a lot is this idea that uh, policies on paper don't really mean much. It is really what policies and practices l- amount to. And if there's this culture that, hey, it doesn't matter what's on paper, like we don't have to comply because EPA is not going to do anything, companies won't do it. And so that type, like unwinding that culture is going to take years and years and years to do. And so it doesn't really matter what we push through Congress in the next, you know, if there's a Democratic president, it's really a shift of culture. And that's that's very hard to change. Well, and with things that are happening at the administrative level, I mean, part of that, too, is that if we do have a Democratic president, uh, you know, more a little over a year from now, uh, a lot of those sort of accomplishments, because they're not sort of codified in legislation, can be pretty much immediately sort of drawn back, you know, reversed in a lot of ways, right, before they could even maybe have the chance to have a, a huge effect, right? Yeah, exactly. And uh, I'll say, so my dissertation chair had spent an entire career at the EPA before he became an academic. And one thing he told me was when Republicans were in charge of the White House, it was hard to work at EPA. Um, That there was this shift that when Democrats came in and the environmental policy agenda became animated and something that was prioritized, the culture there shifted quickly. And it was very obvious who was in the White House, because when Republicans were in control, I mean, the message was like, don't make any trouble. Have there also been impacts on like the agencies themselves beyond just rolling back regulations? Yeah, that's something I think about a lot is regardless what happens in the next election, 
whoever comes into power after Trump, most likely be a Democrat if, if historical precedent holds, it's going to take that person years, to, I think, to reinforce a lot of the democratic norms that have been eroded under this president. And in particular, I, I think agency cultures that have been hollowed out or captured by particular interests. I don't think that is something that changes overnight the way we've seen in the past with sort of some of this administrative whiplash. I think these changes are deep and they're going to take a very long time to reverse. So I would echo what Luke said earlier. And, and also say that um, particularly EPA has lost a lot of institutional memory. A lot of these people, uh, I, I think it was the the leader of the environmental justice uh, basically got dismissed and she'd been there. She'd been at EPA for years and years and years and, and pri- uh, pioneered a lot of these like innovative programs. And so you're losing people that were the innovative thinkers under Obama that really some of them date back to Clinton but certainly were there under Bush as well um, and so they're lo- they're leaving with a lot of this institutional memory of what happened and all that and that's you know one of those like ways that the invaluable resources for an organization is not just to remember what happened last year but we'll remember what happened 10 and 20 years ago and understand why processes and procedures were put in place and we've seen a lot of that in the sort of national security and foreign service apparatus too right I mean a lot of I mean setting aside even the Ukraine stuff, uh, a lot of sort of upheaval, you know, reported upheaval within the sort of foreign service community, which frankly tends to align maybe a little more with sort of Republican politics to begin with. And that's been sort of a consistent thing across, I think, a lot of agencies under this administration. All right. Well, we're going to take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. Hi, this is Kiara Wilson from Boise. You're listening to Radio Boise KRBX 89.9 FM, Caldwell, Boise. Community Radio for Boise and Beyond. Welcome back to Big Tent Radio. We've been discussing um, the year kind of in review in terms of environmental politics and policy. Um, We've covered some of the deregulation that's happened. Um, Another kind of topic of debate was the Paris Climate Accords, correct? That's right. I think that um, that was one of the big environmental stories of the year. And of course, Um, President Trump campaigned on rolling uh, back that agreement and taking the United States out of that agreement. One requirement of the agreement is that the United States had to announce and then wait a year to formally withdraw. And we did that this November. We began began that process to formally uh, withdraw. I think we were talking before the break about sort of the long lasting consequences, environmental consequences of the Trump presidency. And this is for sure one of them. I mean, that agreement, you could argue, took was decades in the making. And it really took a lot of human power, a lot of intellectual effort, a lot of diplomatic effort uh, to make happen. And pretty much within days of being elected, Trump announced that we would be withdrawing for that. So I think that's a really significant legacy that we're looking at in terms of um, our approach to solving the climate problem internationally. Yeah, and so um, one of the the things that that I study, and maybe the few one of the few things I'll claim to be an expert on, is uh, how state and local governments deal with environmental policy. I'm actually sort of writing a book on this, which I will shamelessly plug throughout 2020. So just listen up, folks. <laughs> Stay we can't tuned. Wait. Yes. We can't wait. Uh, but like one of the interesting things that's happened in response to the Paris Climate Agreement is what state and local governments have, have done in response. So there's this things like uh, the U.S. Climate Alliance, which are 24 states that have signed on to uphold the Paris Climate Agreement, regardless of what the national government is. There are the uh, climate mayors. There's more than 400 mayors of, of large and medium-sized cities across the country. They agree the same thing, right? And so um, as much as and it's very interesting to see, like the, the national government has retreated from this, but all the state and local governments are all this subnational government. It's like, no, we're, we're going to do it anyway. We're 
we're going to continue to hold this line. We're going to continue to, to dedicate ourselves to greenhouse gas emission uh, targets. We're going to adopt uh, innovative policies to, to, to reduce our, our burden on the, the environment. Um, L.A. has their own, and we'll talk about the Green New Deal here. L.A. has launched their own uh, Green New Deal um, at the local level. You have cities like Austin that have uh, created uh, innovative environmental impact dashboards and these kind of other tools. But what's going on at the, na- the, the subnational level, the state and local level, is shot. It's it's this been this huge upsurge in uh, interest in climate policy, and really, and what I would say is there's this huge decentralized climate policy in this country. And if you really wanted to understand what was going on, you don't look at the national government; you look at local governments and state and, governments. And it's interesting; we've seen kind of parallels in other policy areas as well, state and local governments becoming more involved and more innovative. And frankly, I think that's where probably a lot of the material accomplishments are going to be made is through these subnational efforts. But I would just say again that symbolically, uh, the fact that we withdrew from this agreement, I think we're seeing it, you know, as we renegotiate a lot of these trade agreements or the Iran nuclear deal, I think it harms um, our ability to engage in these agreements in good faith in the coming decades, the ways in which we were pulled out of them sort of unceremoniously. And I think there's so much trust building that has to happen with such a variety of, of international players. The impact of that, I think, is significant. And I think, like Jackie says, you know, you see state and local, res- like, you know, sort of response completely in the other direction, you know, more progressive direction. And I think not just even uh, sort of saying that they will adhere to the Paris Climate Accords, but that but going way above and beyond sort of what what even the original agreement was. And I think you you do see this in other spaces like immigration, for example, especially a lot at the you know municipal level. This, the whole sanctuary cities issue, issue sort of issue having sort of direct rebukes of these major, you know, sort of policy rollbacks that the the administration has been making. So that's kind of, we've seen response from state and local governments. What has been the response of, like, those in the Democratic Party or on the left um, to some of these developments? Well, and probably the the most landmark achievement on that, right, or, like, I guess the the thing we point to is the Green New Deal, right? And uh, certainly uh, uh, a lot of people in Congress were talking about that earlier this year. Um, This idea and totally pulling on the imagery of the New Deal after uh, in, in response to the Great uh, Recession or the Great God, the Great Depression. God, I'm losing my historical. They're moment both here. bad, Luke. Yes. It's fine. Uh, but uh, totally responding with the like, we need to reorient our economy towards um, clean energy, um, less impact in terms of gro- uh, greenhouse gas emissions, and all this type of stuff. Um, it is is interesting to see the criticisms that have come from both the right and the left on that. Um, on the left, um, there's a lot of people that have basically said, "Oh wait, all of these things that you're talking about, we've already done, and a lot of them were already started under Obama and the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. Um, that was in large part a, a Green New Deal, even if." It wasn't caused that. On the right, people are saying that this isn't really a proposal. It is just a set of talking points. Um, and so there's been a lot of criticism on a lot of these things. And I had uh, me and a, a colleague, Monica Hubbard, had the privilege, honor, whatever you want to call it, uh, the obligation to write a uh, blog uh, post for uh, public administration reviews online uh, uh, website about how the Green New Deal might be administered and operationalized. And the, basically, uh, one of our takes on it was um, essentially like it is naive to think that we can actually implement a Green New Deal from the top down, that the federal government might pass this or even buy into it. But going back to my point earlier, it's really going to require the state and local governments to get on board here. Um, and whatever these proposals are, 
Um, they might not even work unless the local government decide to do it. And so um, the Green New Deal is, again, like that kind of big poster child for what the what we could do about climate change and all this stuff. But there's lots of holes in it. Um, and so I, I think it, it's still one of those things that we debate back and forth. Can I say what I think is really important about it, though, is that for the first time in in history, really, um, the left has connected climate or environmental issues with issues like jobs and issues like health care, whereas in the past it always felt like this trade-off decision, like, okay, uh, most Americans say they care about climate change, but what they really most care about is jobs or the economy or health care, and so we're not even going to talk about climate change. This year, they're all connected. We had a climate town hall for Democratic uh, candidates. So I think we have turned a real corner on progressive politics where climate change is an essential part of the party's identity. And I don't think we can go back from that. And that reflects more what's been happening for a while in Europe with some of the left-leaning parties that have also been working with like green parties to really make these connections. And me and Jen have had this conversation several times, which is one of my biggest criticisms of the environmental movement, um, at least in the last 10 to 15 years, is that they don't do enough to connect environmental policy to economic development, right? And just kind of upholding that thing that the the myth that these two things are mutually exclusive from each other, whether or not, I mean, you look at things like uh, the Porter hypothesis that largely argues that we can envir- use environmental regulations to grow our economy in positive ways, but also looking at the larger environmental impact. And there's a study out of EPA that essentially shows that the Clean Air Act has been one of the best investments this government has ever made, because by reducing air cl- uh, pollution, we have essentially stop people from getting sick. When people get sick, it's like 13 million lost working days um, between 1990 and 2010. So the thing about like when you have to take off work, it slows down the economy, like your, your employer has to pay you, it slows down economic production. Um, it's also things that we have to pay out on, on healthcare and the people most likely to be exposed to environmental pollution are people or traditionally like disenfranchised groups, minorities and the poor. And those are all people that are most likely to rely on public health care options. And so ultimately, like this has a huge economic impact, dirty air. Um, And so like thinking about those terms and making the case like this is actually a really, really good investment for us over the long term. It's not just something that we do because like we're morally, morally obliged to care about the environment. And I think politically, too, it makes it, you know, the framing of it as a Green New Deal, I think probably makes it the, you know, the most palatable it possibly could be to sort of achieve any kind of sort of cross party or cross ideological coalition. I mean, you know, it's it, there a lot of the talk since Trump became president, particularly since, you know, the Democrats took power uh, in the House is, you know, one issue that could possibly maybe get some sort of bipartisan support is, you know, a deal on infrastructure or something like that. And this sort of builds that into a way to address uh, address climate change. And so it'll be interesting to see, you know, in the coming years, you know, if if we have a Democratic president at some point soon, whether or not that's something they'll pursue or if they'll turn to something else. I'll just say that I think one one thing that we all should be watching for, too, is a real uh, pivot in the climate discussion in this country away from the climate denialism debate. Is climate change real? Is it caused by humans? And towards what kinds of solutions are preferred? So we're going to see the Green New Deal type proposals from the left and market-based solutions from the right. And so I think as we look forward to the next decade, that is really where the conversation is going to be. As someone who studies parties, I've seen some within the Republican Party or the larger kind of Republican network starting to focus a little bit more on some of these market kind of based solutions. Great. Well, we're going to return this conversation in a minute. For now, we're going to take a break. 
Welcome back to Big Tent Radio. I'm Jackie Kettler. I'm here with my co-hosts Jen Schneider, Luke Fowler, and Charlie Hunt, all at the School of Public Service at Boise State University. Today we're talking about environmental politics and policy. And one thing that's been really interesting to watch is growing activism on these issues. Um, So what have you all kind of been paying attention to or interested in that's been happening? Well, I think we've been talking about what are the big environmental stories this year, and a lot of them sort of feel bleak or dark or like we're in a a moment of regression. But I think one sort of bright spot or spot we're thinking more about is the role of youth activism, which has really emerged as um, a topic of media interest and political interest this year. And of course, I think the figurehead for that has been Greta Thunberg, the Swedish teenager. She's 16 now, I think, mm-hmm. um, who has come to the United States and been traveling around the world, often by boat, um, to sort of call attention to reducing carbon emissions rather than flying. And she, of course, was Times Person of the Year. I will tell you, I was a little disappointed because, as you saw on Twitter, my prediction for the Time cover for, for Person of the Year was going to be a whistle all with a black background and a nice spotlight coming down. I thought that that would be perfect, but time didn't call me and ask. That does seem like a missed opportunity, right? But maybe the environment is pretty important. It's pretty important, and it's very positive and very forward-looking. So what do you think about um, the the attention being paid to to her um, as a sort of figurehead for the environmental movement? Uh, You know, I I think it's interesting. that climate change finally has a, a face and a voice, and I think that's really one of the things that, that we talk about with climate change is um, it's not it's not one problem; it's every problem, right? And it makes everything a little like wildfires in the west, as we know, the droughts in the south, the southwest, hurricanes in the the southeast and along the eastern states. But I mean, essentially every environmental problem is part of climate change and so when we think about like oh yeah wildfires like there's always that that person on the news that had their, their fire like the house burned down or i can think about hurricane katrina and all like the the images you have from the people you saw in the news being re- like and so there's this face and this human dimension to what it means and climate change has never had that and i think that's really the thing that makes it so i mean it was al gore i guess for the longest time and that was not really a good face to have but that's one of the things that's made it so difficult for people to connect with i guess at a at a human level um and so i I think maybe that is one of the the I guess an important kind of stages here is that we've now put a face on this. We've now put people to it. And it's not this amorphous kind of like imaginary idea and Chinese conspiracy theory or whatever people claim. It's now this person that we can think of. And even if you don't like her, at least there is somebody that is now a face of it. I mean, I would just say that um, the problem with Al Gore, even though he did so much to popularize climate change as an issue, I mean, there's just nobody who really we historically know had more of an impact on climate discourse in the United States. He was partisan. And I think what's um, so powerful about Greta is that she's not partisan. She's a young person. And she's also not afraid to speak truth to power. And she often does it in a really hilarious way. I mean, Charlie, you were talking about the way in which the, uh, the president attacked her recently and her response on social media. Right. I mean, she basically, you know, the president, of course, attacked her, you know, 16 year old girl, president of the United States, of course, have to attack her. Well, she was on the cover of his favorite magazine, and he's right. a little jealous. He's right? very, very jealous. Um, but uh, yeah, she just takes it in stride, and then you know takes whatever sort of adjectives he ascribes to her, and just puts it in her t- in her Twitter bio. And, within uh, minutes. Within minutes, it's really quite <laughs> so something. I mean, I think I, I think it's a really interesting development, and I think there's you know it's been an, an interesting parallel seeing that along with. Uh, sort of the you know the gun safety gun control movement with you know what we saw with Emma Gonzalez and the and the Parkland kids last year where you know 
kids who are unique, you know, generation that is uniquely affected by this because, you know, you know, younger people have to live with all of these decisions. And, uh, you know, this is something that has been done in some research, some research I'm doing now, actually, with uh, Stella Rouse looks at uh, millennial state legislators and how they react to issues that uniquely affect millennials. And they overwhelmingly sponsor bills related to climate change and gun safety relative to their sort of older counterparts. And so we're seeing this sort of at the activist level. And, you know, we think, you know, hopefully also at, at sort of the at the public level and in, in legislatures uh, throughout I, the country. I do think it's interesting. Like there's always a lot of discussion about the need to have young people engaged and involved in politics. Yet there has been some backlash for this youth activism, which mm-hmm. is really kind of interesting in that, I guess, perhaps the desire it's the youth engagements desired from particular points of view, perhaps, and not as activists. I think uh, I love the comparison that you made between Greta and the Parkland kids, because I think one thing they have in common is that they've both been very savvy users of media, but they've also really been good at deflecting to the movement. So they've sort of refused or tried to debunk the the iconization of themselves. Um, So uh, Greta, for example, will call attention to other youth activists of color, for example, who've been really involved in this issue for a long time, same as the Parkland kids calling attention to inner city violence. And I think for me, that suggests that they're very aware that they're building a movement. Well, and I think I think the partisan aspect is interesting, too, because it's not like you see them out there just campaigning with Democratic candidates or sort of being being sort of sucked into this sort of partisan fight. They exist in and of themselves and are sort of fighting their own fights. And I think that lends them a lot of legitimacy for a lot of Americans, uh, even partisan ones who are sort of sick, uh, thinking, oh, this is just another partisan fight. It's like, no, these kids are literally fighting for their lives. And if we look at the Sunrise Movement, for example, which I think is a, a sort of the big organization that has taken the place of, of Bill McKibben's organization, it was... Um, Something 360, I'm forgetting it. Anyway, Bill McKibben was the big activist. He's a baby boomer and now has been replaced by this generation of young people through Sunrise. And I think they are calling to account leaders on the right and the left. They're not letting yeah. anybody off the hook. Which I think it was is going to be really important, again, because that, I mean, like the Parkland survivors have had some partisan backlash on their activism. So yeah. for the climate movement, I mean, I think this is going to be really important to make it nonpartisan, bipartisan, just like not being able to fall into those, those, that, those divisions. Well, I'll say, uh, and Jen, I'm sure you have read uh, Death to Environmentalism by Sheldon Berger and Nordhaus. But I mean, largely they kind of predicted this um, almost 20 years ago now, I guess. I mean, they, they argued that that the traditional environmental movement can't handle globalized issues like climate change. And the only way that we move forward is for it to die. I mean, death to environment and a new mo- movement to grow in place. And I think that's exactly what is happening now, that all those traditional organizations, institutions like Sierra Club and all this are really taking a back seat to this new grassroots movement that's organized in a completely different way and thought about in a completely different way. I would just hearken back, though, to that discussion that we had about the Green New Deal, which is, I think, Schellenberger and Nordhaus and that crew really would be, would have been in favor of clumsy policy solutions and incrementalism. And I think what the Green New Deal is calling for and what Sunrise is calling for and Greta is calling for is pretty radical, pretty radical social change, pretty radical political change. And for me, I think... Th- it's inspiring to see what they're doing, but it's also markedly different from the conversations we've been having around the environment in the last 20 years. 
and, and which sets up for some really interesting questions and analysis moving into this next decade on on what happens with these move, kind of growing movements that are really centering on on, on youth activism. Yeah, they're going to vote here pretty quick, so keep an eye out. Great. Well, we thank you for joining us on this Thursday. Um, We appreciate you listening.